0: Well, in our study through Colossians, the first two chapters deal with what it means to be Christ-like. And then in chapter 3, it explains how those truths are to appear in the church, in the home, beginning with husbands, wives, children, mothers, fathers, and then at work. You know, all of the epistles do that. Do you realize that? Romans, first eight chapters have to do with doctrine. After you deal with Israel in 9, 10, and 11, 12 through 16 is the application Ephesians, first three chapters, doctrine. Last three chapters, application. So that's what's taking place here. This is the application of what it means to be Christ-like. The Holy Spirit through Paul now addresses the Christian functioning in a world that is by nature spiritually lost. How do we do that? Continue steadfastly in prayer. That does not mean that we necessarily are always speaking to the Lord. But we are constantly aware of, of what's occurring around us, and so we're quick to what? To seek the Lord's leading in every situation. You know, when Christ says in Luke 18, pray at all times and don't lose heart, he's not talking about you walk around with your head bowed all the time, your eyes are closed all the time, that you're engaged in this nonstop talking all the time. What he means is, as a Christian, in a world that is spiritually lost, you are constantly aware of the Lord's presence as you seek his will. Martin Luther, one of the guys the Lord used to bring about the Protestant Reformation, received word that his good friend Frederick Myconius was dying. You know what he sent him in the letter? What would you say to a friend of yours that you heard was dying? How would you address him? You know how Martin addressed the letter? He said, I command you in the name of the Lord to live because of the great need we have for you within the church. For this I am praying as I seek only to glorify the name of our Lord. My Cneus was already unable to speak, he was so sick, he was at death's door. And he miraculously recovers He lives another six years. He outlives Martin Luther by two months. Continue steadfastly means that we are persistent, persistent in our pursuit of God's will regardless of circumstances. Like Jacob in um, Genesis 32. Remember when he was wrestling with the angel of the Lord? He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I won't do it. King Hezekiah um, repents, and the Lord spares Judah, and he says, please, Lord, give me another 15 years. He's going to rid the land of idolatry, and the Lord extends his life 15 years. Nehemiah, he prays the same way. He's got a burden for Jerusalem. He, He hadn't been to Jerusalem. He was born in captivity. But he has a heart for Jerusalem and the walls that are broken down. And he said, I prayed day and night, seeking the Lord's will in this matter, of rebuilding walls around Jerusalem. And how does the Lord answer? He uses a pagan king, Artaxerxes, to not only give him time off to go back and rebuild the walls, but to provide security for him so that he has the safety necessary to do that which everybody said was impossible. You can't do this. And he did it in record time of 52 days. So what's it mean to be steadfast in prayer? It's persistent. We are persistently seeking the Lord's will. We are not giving in until we know it. You know, when Wellington was started, just a small nucleus of people were meeting in an elementary gym, and uh, we did so for two years. That may not sound like a long time But you know, when you're looking for land, two years is a long time. And we couldn't find any. We couldn't find anything that we could afford. I was confident that we were doing the Lord's work. Through the courses that we taught, through the discipleship that we had in place, the expository teaching of God's word, which I was very new at at that time, But I tell you, rejection after rejection after rejection got discouraging. I couldn't sleep. So I got up at 4 a.m. one morning, went out for a walk, and began to pray. Lord, I just want you to make it clear to me. Just make it clear that this is your will. I mean, we will continue to wait upon your timing. We are not going to lose faith, but I'm growing weary. I went back to my basement, which is where my office was located at that time, began to work on the sermon for that Sunday, work on the lessons that were to be taught, the Bible courses that we were putting into place. And as I am doing that, the phone rings. A friend called me about a basketball game that night, said, oh, by the way, did you hear that the acreage out there on Nicholasville Road uh, has, uh, is back on the market? There was a lumber yard down in Nicholasville that bought that land and they didn't get their permits for it. They were turned down, and so it's back on the market. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, no. I called one of our guys who was in real estate, and I said, is that property available? He said, yeah. He said, actually, our office has it listed. Really? Well, we had a quick meeting, made an offer. Within hours, this property became the future home of Wellington. Took another two and a half years to get the facility out of the ground. But we were persistent, persistent in prayer till the Lord made his will known. Where do you want us to go, Lord? Where? Every place that we've tried to find isn't working. Where do you want us to go? I want you to go here. The root word for steadfastly means courageous, persistent, bold. I won't give up. I won't give up till your will is made clear. To continue steadfastly for the Christian is like breathing. How many of you right now, be honest, how many of you are thinking about breathing? You're not, are you? And yet you're doing it. Why is that? Why are you breathing? Because the atmosphere is exerting pressure on your lungs and is forcing you to breathe. That's why it's harder for you to hold your breath than it is for you to breathe. Paul's point is this the atmosphere of God's presence around your life as a Christian leads you to continually breathe the air of prayer until you know God's will in every situation. Now, this is not talking about this name it, claim it stuff, you know, where we demand that God give us what we want and how we want it all of our desires, and we want it now, we want it done this way. That's not what he's talking about here. That stuff is blasphemous, blasphemous. He's talking about we continue steadfastly in prayer, seeking the Lord's will, his way, in his time, as we are watchful in a spirit of thanksgiving. Now, this word watchful is Gregorio. Gregorio, from which the early Christians got the name Gregory. You know what it means? So, well, it's translated watchful. Yeah, but it means alert. If, If you've got a kid named Greg and he won't get out of bed in the morning, you need to change his name. Because, you know where they got this word from? This word comes from when a soldier was vigilant, he was on guard. He was always ready. He was alert. He was watching. This is the word that Christ uses when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he gives two imperatives. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, we are to have an alert mind that always prays with an attitude of gratitude. Let me give you an example here. Imagine a patient going to his doctor and he's telling him everything that ails him, you know? Telling him everything that's going wrong in, in, with his body. You know, and he just talks and, talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. And then he leaves the doctor's office the same way that he arrived. Why? Why is that? He had no interest in hearing what the doctor had to say. <laughs> Prayer is not our monologue before the Lord. Prayer is when we come to the Lord with a spirit of gratitude and we're still and we know that he is God. Psalm 146, or not 146, is Psalm 46. Psalm 46 verse 10. Be still, be still and know that I am God. And so as we pray for his will, What is helpful for us? When we pray, what do we need to know? We need to know his word. I mean, we go before the Lord in prayer seeking his will. His will is what we're seeking because it's always right, because he is holy, right? And he is sovereign. Our only purpose in life is to finish well. Therefore, we continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, how are we going to know his will if we don't know his word? Did he not say the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective? James 5.16 Yeah, yeah, you did say that, Lord, but I tell you, to be honest with you, the only righteousness I have is what I have in Christ. That's right. So what does that mean? That, That means then I ought to be praying what Christ would pray. That's right. What did he pray? Thy will be done. That's right. That's what I pray. Thy will be done. Did I not say my eyes are on the righteous and my ears attentive to their prayers? 1 Peter 3, 12. Yes, Lord. You did say that. Did I not say that you can ask for anything according to my will and I'll hear you? 1 John 5, 14. Yes. Yes, you said that, Lord. Did I not say that you were to pray with faith? James 1, 5. Did I not say that you were to pray with thanksgiving, Philippians 4, 6? Yes, Lord. Did I not say you were to pray with a spirit of forgiveness, Mark eleven twenty five? 25? Yes, Lord. Did I not warn you? Did I not warn you in my word that if you pray with selfish motives to spend whatever you receive on your own self for the wrong reasons, that you are not going to receive it from me, James 4, 3? Now you, might, you might receive it, but it's not going to be for me and it's not going to bless your life. Yes, Lord, you did say that. So what are you telling me? You're telling me I better examine what I'm praying for. And I better examine how I am praying for it. And as I do that, I am to grow in my faith and in my trust, with sincere appreciation, just knowing, just knowing that you hear my prayers and that you will answer my prayers according to your holy will and in your perfect timing. And you know, Lord, for that, I am deeply appreciative, deeply appreciative. So you got to keep in mind, where is Paul when he's writing this? Where is he? He's in prison. And not because, of he, did, not because he did anything wrong. But while he's in Philippi, remember how he healed the young girl and the owner got so ticked off that she was well and and now he wasn't able to make any money off of her anymore? And there was such a riot that that Paul and Silas are arrested and thrown into, into prison for disturbing the peace in Acts 16? You know, that was the occasion the Lord uses for Paul to deliver the gospel to the Philippian jailer. Well, if you go a little further, you find in Acts 21, he's arrested again. This time he's in Jerusalem. And some Jews from Asia have accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple area. That's not true. They lied. But nevertheless, there was such a disturbance that Paul is arrested to keep them from killing him. And so he's thrown into jail in Jerusalem. And this is the occasion that the Lord uses. He opens a door there for him to deliver the gospel to the officials of the Sanhedrin. Then later, he gets to deliver the gospel to Governor Felix. And after him, he gets to deliver it to the king, King Herod Agrippa II. And then to Governor Festus. All of whom, every one of them, admitted that Paul had done nothing wrong. But to keep the Jewish community from causing problems, which was what their whole role was in Rome, they ship Paul off to, to Rome, where he's kept in a prison there. And that's where he shares the gospel and gives his testimony of what had happened to him on the road to Damascus, why his life took such a dramatic change. And that's why he says in verse 3, would you pray also for us? Pray for us. That the Lord may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That's what he's talking about. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm praying that you get us out of this Roman dungeon. He is spiritually alert to the fact that the Lord is sovereign over all things. That there was a reason why the Lord knocked him off his horse on his way to kill more Christians. There was a reason for that. And so what does Paul know? Paul knows that no man can bring spiritually dead people to life. Only the Lord can renew the mind, can remove the scales from the eyes, can regenerate the soul. And so he commands them, you pray, you pray. That I might be able to fulfill the very purpose for which I have been called to this ministry. That's why in Acts 14, it says when they arrived, the church declared how the Lord opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Keep reading, Acts 16. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to what was spoken by Paul, the mystery of the gospel. When he's writing to the Corinthians, he's talking about his time in Ephesus. And he said, a wide door for effective work was opened to me. You know, a question that I am often asked is, if the Lord is sovereign, why do I need to pray? You know, I mean, the Lord's going to do whatever he's going to do, right? So what's the purpose of my praying? Well, the Lord has not only purposed the end from the beginning because he is sovereign. He's also purposed the means. And so when he's going to do what he's going to do, he says this. You pray. You go. You speak. And I'll accomplish my purposes. That's how I have purposed it to occur. That's why you have not if you ask not. I have purposed the means as well as the end from the beginning. Paul calls the gospel a mystery. Why? Why is that? To be honest with you, humans that are spiritually dead, they can't figure this out. They can't do it. They always come up with what? What do men come up with? Religious systems. Why? Because that's how they can justify themselves, by their good deeds, by their moral excellence, by their transcendental meditations. No one who is spiritually dead is ever going to recognize God is holy, I am not. And there's no way I can reconcile myself to him. I can't do it. So it just makes logical sense that the creator, he's going to have to incarnate himself to make atonement for my sin. He will have to satisfy the wrath that I deserve. No man comes up with that on his own. He can't. Well, how do you know that? Isn't that kind of a broad statement? I know that by the evidence. Look at the world religions. Look at Hinduism. Look at Buddhism. Look at Islam. Look at Mormonism. Look at all of them. They take the same approach, every one of them. Why do you think the world is so hostile to Christianity? They're not hostile to Hinduism, they're not hostile to Buddhism, they're not hostile even to Islam, as as horrific as that religion can be. They're not hostile to that, they're hostile to Christianity. Why? Because that is the truth, the truth against which they rebelled. When I was teaching in India, there's less than 1% of the people are Christians over there. And yet there was one billboard after another that, that was we've got to stop Christianity, we've got to stop Christianity, we've got to stop Christianity because their government is Hindu. Less than 1%. What's Paul doing in prison? He's writing a letter to the church at Ephesus, wrote the book of Ephesians. He's writing to the church at Philippi, wrote the book of Philippians. He's writing this letter to the church at Colossae. Colossians, he's writing to his good buddy Philemon, who's actually hosting the church at Colossae in his home. And in each one of those letters, what does he say? Every one of them. He says, pray for me. Pray for me that the Lord will providentially open the doors of opportunity for me to fulfill the purpose for which I have been given following my encounter with Christ. Pray for me. I want to finish well. Pray that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. What is our personal, res- you know, you, you've got God is sovereign, man is responsible. What is our personal responsibility? It is to pray and to speak. That's our personal responsibility. What is the church's responsibility? Well, it's to be Christ-like. You'd be loving in the church, you'd be loving in the home, you'd be loving in the workplace. You're to be faithful in your ministry by clarifying the mystery of the message of Christ's redemption for spiritually dead men. That's your role and my role. Now, God is sovereign. What is his role? What is his role? To open the door for us to speak clearly and accurately. Now, some would say, well, no, that's what you're supposed to do as the pastor. No, it's not. I'm supposed to do that, but it's not limited to me. Who's this written to? It's not written to me. It's not written to pastors. It's written to the church. It's written to the church, the whole church. I explain this mystery from the pulpit. I explain this mystery in the classroom. I explain this mystery in my own home. I explain this mystery and to, to those who come to my study in my office. But you know what? I cannot explain this clearly to people you know that I've never met. I can't do it. I've never met them. There's a young man in our church, Kung No. No. He's getting his Ph.D. here at U.K. We call him Dr. No. He's from South Korea. He came to this country for an education. And someone, while he was at Cal State... Someone in California explained the mystery of the gospel to him. And the Lord opened his heart like it did for Lydia in Acts 16. And he becomes a Christian. And then he goes to Houston. And someone in Houston, while he's getting his masters there, disciples him. Now the Lord is opening the door for him to come here to explain the mystery of the gospel to university students as he's working on his Ph.D. And he's worshiping and growing in God's word with us. Why? Because it's absolutely essential that when he explains the gospel, he does so accurately. The Lord is holy, therefore truth matters. And here is something else that is essential. Not only that he does it, but look at verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Our actions kind of provide the sounding board for our answers. And, you know, to be honest with you, sometimes our actions speak so loudly others can't even hear what we say. It's the job of the entire church to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, those outside the church as we make the best use of the time. In other words, what he's saying to us, don't, don't blow an opportunity to be a good witness. We have not been redeemed by the grace of God to just go out and make a living. We have been redeemed by the grace of God to go out and make a difference. So what does this making the best use of time mean? Well, there are two major words for time in the New Testament: Chronos," from which we get the word chronology. It's a sequence of events that has to do with the historical times in which men live. But if I were to say to you, "Do you remember back when you were 10? Remember when you were 12? See, I'm talking about a critical period of time in your life that has passed. You were 10 for a while. But that is no more. That time is gone. Well, that's the word that we find here karas. Karas. Enjoy the karas, the time you have when you are young, because when you get older, it's no fun. That's the word Paul chooses to use here. It's a critical period of time, and it's temporary. You know, the oldest psalm in your Bible is the one written by uh, Moses, Psalm 90. And what does he say in Psalm 90? Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. You know, this word for make the best use, this word for redeeming the time, you know what that is? Exagrazo. Exagrazo. Buy it up. Buy it up. What's that mean? It's it's like the lady who's wasting no time to get to the store on Black Friday. She's in line at 4 a.m. Why? Because TVs are only half off for a brief time and then they're gone. So what should our attitude during this time that is passing quickly, what should it be? Walk in wisdom. Use your head. Understand where you are in history, who you're with and why you are here. Why has the Lord brought you here? What is the opportunity he's putting before you? Be smart. Buy up the time. You're not here just to make a living. You're here to make a difference. Let me give you an example. I uh, was listen to this goes back some ways, but I was listening to Alister Begg uh, talk one time, and he was telling about a, a guy who was exiting off one of those crazy L.A. freeway ramps uh, out there, and, and uh, he didn't see the car beside him. The guy was in his blind spot, and he nearly caused a terrible accident. And the guy that he cut off, you, you know what they do when you cut them off, right? You know how they act. He was so mad that he follows this guy all the way to his office, pulls in behind him and he jumps out and he lets him have it you almost killed me and a number of other people and he jumped back in his car and he drove off well the fellow who had caused the problem didn't really have a chance to respond but he wrote down the license plate number and he called a friend who was a part of the police force and he got this man's name and address and um, he didn't want to call him he felt like that uh, he really needed to see him face to face, given how angry he was. And so he drives to this man's home and he knocks on the door and the guy answers and he said, um, "I'm the guy who cut you off on the ramp this morning." He said, "I know. I recognize you. You almost killed me. I know. I know. And I, I just want you to know that I'm really thankful that you reacted as quickly as you did." And I want you to know, I didn't do that on purpose. I didn't. And I am truly sorry. And he said, you drove all the way over here to say that? He said, yeah, I did. Why? Why? He said, well, as a Christian, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And with that, the Lord opened the door of opportunity for this guilty man to seize the moment. You know what ends up happening? I'm not going to go into the rest of the story, but the two of them become friends. The man who did wrong seized the moment to share the gospel with the man he had wronged, and the two of them end up becoming friends, and the, the guy who was offended became a Christian, and they end up wor- worshiping together and serving together in the same church. That's walking in Wisdom. That's a man who understands who he is, why he's here, and how he can make the most of the time when the Lord opens a door of opportunity for him. History is not an accident, folks. You are here for a reason. Don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. You know, the scripture says of David in Acts 13, after he served the purpose of God in his generation, he fell asleep. That's an Old Testament term for he died. You have a purpose in your generation. And you have a limited amount of time to live wisely. Don't, don't, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Now how are we to do this? Well, he not only tells you what to do, he tells you how to do it. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Make sure your speech is wholesome and kind and gracious. You know, when when you cut somebody off and they are pretty ugly about it, don't be vindictive, don't be abrasive, don't be boastful. He says to season your speech with salt. Well, salt was used to keep food from rotting. Salt was used to add flavor. It was to make make food palatable. (laughs) And so his point is this, you, you, you can't effectively share this magnificent mystery of the gospel with a rotten tongue. You can't do it. Now sometimes salt will sting when there's a wound that needs to be addressed. Sometimes a, a word needs to be spoken to prevent corruption and, and that, that can sting a bit. But speech seasoned with salt has a cleansing effect, has a refreshing impact. Isn't that, what it, isn't that what Proverbs 25 says? Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a right is a word rightly spoken, right? Let your speech be seasoned with salt so you will know how you ought to answer each person. You know, as I looked at that, that, that does not mean that we have to have all the answers to every question that we are asked. So, so don't, don't hesitate to share the gospel because you think, oh, well, I, I don't know if I'll be able to answer everything that they ask me. No, this, is like, um, this is like the guy uh, who who's sees someone shoot another person in downtown Lexington and he is taken to court, and they question him. He's on the stand, and they said, what did you see? He said, well, I, I saw that guy shoot that guy. Okay. Um, what kind of gun was it? I don't know. Was it American made? I, I don't know. Was it double action or single action? I, I don't know. What's his lawyer gonna do? His lawyer is going to speak up and say, Your Honor, this is not an expert witness. He's just saying what he knows to be true. He saw this guy shoot that guy. That's all he knows. It's kind of like the guy in John 9. All I know is this I was blind, but now I see. You know, when I became a Christian in high school, my friends were asking me all kinds of questions for which I had no idea what the answer was. I just told them what I knew to be true. Here's what I know for sure. God is holy. You and I both know I am not. And it was by his grace that he did for me what I could never do for myself. He lived a life I have not lived. And he died a death I could not die. He satisfied the just wrath my sin deserves. I could never do that. And and, and this is how he has changed my life. That was all I was able to tell them. That was all I could say. And so when we're sharing this gospel, our words, though, need to be gracious, not self-righteous. Don't come across as an arrogant know-it-all. We pray with gratitude for what the Lord has done for us. And therefore, we speak the truth with graciousness. Truth that is consistent with scripture, but we do so graciously. I had a family one time come to my previous church and uh, they were standing at the back door. We had three, three doors that exited back. I always stood at the middle door and so they went through there. And they were talking about how much they enjoyed the worship service and how much they uh, really uh, liked a lot of the things that they had witnessed and and seen. And they were excited about the ministry. And and then just in the middle of this exciting conversation that we were having, the guy saw a a man go out the the door over here to the left and go go outside. And he said, does he go to church here? I said, yeah, he does. He said, come on, honey, let's go. I said, whoa, 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 do you know him? He said, oh yeah, we're not coming back. We're not coming back. I loved that guy that went out that side door, but I tell you what, he was prickly. Man, he could rub people the wrong way because his speech was not seasoned with salt, but with vinegar, and you know what it was doing? It was destroying his witness, destroying it. I loved that guy. I refused to allow him to offend me. But how he said things offended other people to the point that he could not, he could not earn the right to be heard about the wonderful mystery of the gospel. Now, listen, we all can fall short in this department, including me, including Paul, including Paul. Acts 23, high priest has Paul kind of smacked in the mouth for something. And and you know what Paul's response was? May God strike you, you whitewashed wall. Not exactly seasoned with salt, was it? And Those standing by him said, is that how you speak to the high priest? And Paul said, ooh, ooh, my bad. I didn't know he was the high priest. Maybe that's why Paul wrote this to the church. Walk in wisdom. Make the best use of this time. It's fleeting. Think carefully, not only about what you say, but how you say it. The gentleman in my former ministry, whom I loved, It was just heartbreaking for me. Because I knew him and I knew he had a good heart. But other people would not allow themselves to get to know him. And they would not worship with him because he never disciplined himself to be verbally gracious. to season his words with a savoriness that was attractive rather than offensive. He never got it. So to live the new life that Christ purchased for us in a lost world, it begins by persistently speaking to the Lord in prayer, persistently. As we are very alert with an attitude of gratitude for the opportunities that he provides for us to fulfill our purpose here. And then clearly speaking the wisdom, using words of wisdom, the mysteries of the gospel as we buy up the time. And we let our speech have a savory attractiveness to it as we give others a reason for the faith that we have in Christ. A faith that gives our life meaning and purpose. Well, if you have any questions about that, um, you can go to the connect table or you can come to the prayer room or you can send me an email and we'll meet together in my my study. I'll be glad to help any way that I can. Before you go, though, before we pray, as you know, we vote this Tuesday. And I have been asked by several people to explain amendment number two. And the reason is, is because uh, the wording on an amendment can be very confusing And there have been lots of commercials making claims based on different interpretations rather than the actual wording of the amendment. But I have read the amendment, and it does not not eliminate abortions that put a mother's life or health in danger. The amendment, which was passed by 80% of the Kentucky House and 85% of the Kentucky Senate, All it's meant to do is to limit activist judges from imposing their values on Kentuckians based on their interpretation of the Constitution. That's what it limits. Now, the ballot this year is very, very long, so you're going to have to go all the way to the end to make sure your voice is heard. But I'll try to do this as clearly as I can. If you choose to vote yes, that means that you are recognizing life in the womb is sacred and you want it protected by the Constitution. If you vote no, it means that you don't want an amendment in the Constitution specifically protecting life in the womb, unborn children. Um, the, one of the commercials I, I, I saw, you know, it highlights that word nothing, but if you notice it goes by really quick, so you can't actually read what's there unless you pause, right? and what that nothing is it says that nothing in the constitution um, can give you the right to go in and demand an abortion or demand that taxpayers pay for your abortion that's what it means there's nothing in the constitution it doesn't mean that, that, that doctors and individuals cannot make uh... Um, decisions uh, based on, on the life of a mother or life of, of another. But it's simply keeping activist judges from imposing their will and from asking taxpayers to then pay for it. So I hope that clarifies it. Um, I just want you to, to go and be salt and light and do what the Lord would have you to do. And I just want you to be informed as to as to what it actually says because... Uh, you got different folks out there who are uh, wanting to to kinda skew things in order to get you to to go their way and, and it's not always very straightforward so I hope that helps. Stand with me as we pray together. Lord we continue to come steadfastly in prayer with hearts filled with thanksgiving as we want to be alert to doors of opportunity that we trust you are opening for us to fulfill your will and to fulfill the purpose for our lives, the lives that you have given us in Christ. And Lord, we ask for wisdom because you said, you said in your word, if we asked, you would grant it liberally without finding fault. So we ask for wisdom to know how as we leave this place to be all that you've called us to be to fulfill the purpose that you have given us in Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.